Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. thinking about and it seems to me that this is true that we're in a we're in a time of transition right now and um, I don't know if it's a global thing or if it's something that I'm feeling especially with myself or uh, I mean don't get any ideas I'm not talking about <laughs> going and joining the Peace Corps or anything like that just uh, feels like there's transition around and I, I think probably I felt a little unsettled about things like that uh, for a while, but um, one of the great things that we can rejoice in as Christians is the fact that we have hold of the eternal and the unchanging God. And so I just thought we might start out with uh, a question, and I want you to think about this. Um, try to try to limit it to one answer if you have an answer. What do you think has changed the most in your lifetime? What do you think has changed the most? Go ahead and raise your hand if you have an answer and you want to say something. All right, Susanna? You? (laughs) Was that anybody else's answer? Dean? (laughs) Okay. All right. Jordan? Okay. The right now, or right now kind of moment. Sandy? Technology? Technology has changed a lot, and it's caused life to change. Nick, how about you? Social media, it's changed a lot of things, yeah. Yeah. There's a book that was written, and I can't remember the author's name, called Alone Together, how we're more connected technologically and less connected socially than ever before. Okay. Anybody else? Yeah, Marilyn. Our government? Okay. Okay. Anyone else? Georgia. <laughs> that's changed in your life, hasn't it? Yeah, good, good. Anyone else with The question is, what's changed in your lifetime? What stands out to you the most? Yeah, Dax. Okay, so more more of a trying to think of the right word for that, but more of a delineation between those who want to follow God and those who don't, like the middle area of kind of the people who are half-hearted. That's shrinking. Is that fair to say? Okay, good. Anybody else? Ryan. <laughs> okay, did me. Yep. Okay. Susanna.
Yeah. Yeah, that goes along with um, somebody made the comment about World War I that the nature of the human heart hadn't changed. Everybody was thinking right around the beginning of the 1900s that life was going to be a lot better because we were more industrialized and that was just going to make life better in every way. But the human heart hadn't changed, and so we used all of our technology as weapons of mass destruction. And uh, look at the 20th century was the bloodiest century in the history of the world. And so sin hasn't changed, but technology gives us more avenues in which to express that. And it can be on a grander scale. Anybody else? Church attendance has changed. It has. It has. In fact, um, I didn't think, I, I read recently that church attendance had held pretty solidly around 40% for over the last century, but just recently has it really begun to shrink that people are starting to move more and more away from church? I'm not saying everybody was a Christian, but I'm saying at least nominally there were a lot. there's a lot more church attendance, but that's begun to change in a massive way. And we could probably think of reasons why, but that's not what we're um, trying to do tonight. I wanted to talk about this out of Psalm 1, and maybe we could title this something like um, Companion Along the Eternal Way. That's a a long sentence, Renita, don't put that as the title of the message, but, but it's, a, it's just to introduce a thought. We inhabit time, but we're connected to the eternal. And so because we inhabit time, we have to live in this tension between two facts that there is the eternal, but also there's the changing of seasons. I don't know if you remember the passage in Ecclesiastes where it, um, what was the group in the 60s that wrote the song along with it? Um, you know, a time to live and a time to die. Who was that? Anybody know? The birds. That's right, the birds, okay? Um, and they borrowed that from Ecclesiastes. And at the end of that, so if you remember that passage, it sets uh, things that are in contrast to one another, a time to live, a time to die, a time to gather, a time to scatter, okay? Things like that. And the, at the end of it, it recognizes that there is everything can be beautiful in its proper time. And then it says, but in all of this, he has set eternity in our hearts. Meaning that there is change in seasons around us, but there's something in our hearts that longs for the eternal. And uh, we, want, we want for there to be something that is unchanging. And so, uh, you know, when it comes to this, this can be an area of stress for us, and we, we live in that tension. Some people have a disposition that is welcoming to change. You know, there are some people that are bored with the status quo. They want they want it to change. And we usually we usually call those people teenagers, right? They want something they want something new all the time. But there's others who long for permanence. And I think that there's uh, there's people who have a disposition towards one or the other. But I think probably in our hearts, it's it's fair to say that we really want both of those things. We want there to be change in its proper place. And and God has. Um, I hate to use the word genius because that's so below him, but in just the most wise way, he has created us to live life in increments. And aren't you glad for that? Like, you, you have a bad day, you can go to bed and wake up, and tomorrow can be better, and there's new mercies for it. Um, but he's also given us something in our heart that longs for the, the permanence. We live in that tension between those two things, and the stress of life usually comes when something we want to stay the same changes and something we want to change stays the same. And so we find that there's stresses 
in those areas. Looking at Psalm 1, I'd like you to notice that, that this is a call for a life of permanence in the midst of shifting seasons, okay? And, and there's a way to that. This is the companion. I'm just going to spoil it right here. The companion along the permanent path is the Bible, okay? God's Word, okay? And God Himself. I don't want to suggest that He's spoken His Word and then He's left us alone. He Himself accompanies His Word and, and walks with us. But one of the companions that He gives us to help us regulate life is the Word of God. And so with it, um, for example, just to borrow on Dean and um, Dean, uh, Dean's analogy here is that there is a shifting in what morals are about, at least culturally. But when we have the Word of God, we can we can cling to a permanent set of ethics and know that there's a right and wrong that's enduring. Are you with me on that? That there's, there's something that uh, of universals that speaks not only to the Hebrew culture and the Greek culture but to our American culture in our day and can challenge the status quo and can challenge the direction morally that our country is going. And so we have this permanence. And what that does is it at times helps us to be revolutionary. At times it seems like we're curmudgeons because we're stuck in this narrow, old-fashioned way of thinking. But what we've really done is we've, we've uh, connected ourselves to the eternal. And when that happens, um, Os Guinness says in his book, Prophetic Untimeliness, he says that if you hold to the eternal, you will always be relevant because the eternal is always relevant. And so we're hanging on to the Word of God. And so that's what it is. And that the question then would be, is there any way for us to grow and still remain the same? And I think that there is. Let's look at Psalm 1, and we'll read the whole thing. And as we do that, we'll, we'll talk through this a little bit and then go from there. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and whose, who meditates on that law, his law, day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in its season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever, he, whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. The first thing I'd like you to notice here is the contrast that's made. Do you see the contrast? Verses 1 through 3 talks about what kind of person? The virtuous person, the righteous person, the wise, the wise person even. And then um, it's, it's not specifically named in those verses other than blessed. Um, but in the second portion... The person is actually named, and what would that portion be? That's in verses 4 through 6. The wicked, the wicked. So there's a contrast here between the wicked and the righteous. Notice, uh, first of all, the righteous in verse 1. Um, in verse 1, it tells us what the righteous don't do. Isn't that interesting, what they don't do? What is it that they don't do? Okay, they don't walk in, in the way of the wicked or the way of the sinners. Or stand in the, the way of the, the, the sinners or sit in the, accompany, in the company of the mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. So I'd like you to notice some, some progression here. First of all, did you see that it says in verse 1 uh, here, walk? And then this, the next uh, line there is stand, and then the third line is sit. 
Okay. What is, what is that? If we think about that in terms of motion, what's happening? What's that? Slowing down. Okay. Moving from motion to sitting. Okay. Kind of a static fixed position in a way. All right. So notice that there's a progression there. Um, when it says walk in the council, uh, this is a path of advice. So the to walk with, with sinners, this is kind of, it seems at first kind of casual, like you're walking with a group of people who in their, um, their, th- their thought life, the kind of counsel they would give you is not godly counsel, it's not wise counsel, it's not God-oriented counsel. And you know that if God's not at the center of that, that it lacks wisdom, okay? So certain things make sense perfectly if you take God out of the equation, okay? There's some, the, the sinner's way, it makes sense to them because God's not in the picture. But things change and wisdom gets reoriented when God is in the equation. Are you with me on that? That it makes, like, it doesn't make financial sense to the world, uh, let's just call them the worldling, okay? I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but somebody who is fixated on things. It doesn't make sense to give towards the things of God, right? It makes better sense to accumulate and get all that you can. But when you've got God at the center and you know he's watching, you know he has a purpose in this world and you want to participate in that, then giving starts to make sense in light of that. When we know that what Jesus said, that a man's life doesn't consist of the things that they possess, then it, it changes, it orients our life in a different way. And and not only that, but in regard to uh, instant gratification. Like, if there is no heaven and there's no God, then do whatever you want to do and get the most pleasure out of, you can out of life because this is all there is. That's the Epicurean philosophy is eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Okay, and then there is nothing. Well, that's not the Christian way, is it? <laughs> the Christian way is that there are times we make sacrifices now, but the sacrifices not only yield benefit in the eternal kingdom to come, but also they're, they're wise for gaining the most fulfillment out of this life. Are, are you with me on that? That if we do the right things in this life, all the laws of God are geared towards this world working the way that it's supposed to. And so sometimes when you're a kid growing up in church, you're asking, why, are we, why do we have all these don'ts? That seems like a real drag. And the reason for the don'ts is because there's areas God wants to bless us in, and if we misuse those areas, we'll be robbed of the most fulfillment in life that he's planned for those particular purposes. And so he's put things in place for that reason. So he says, hey, don't, don't walk in the counsel of the wicked here. I think this translation says walk in step in the NIV, but the in step there has to do with advice or counsel of the wicked. It's, it's, it's following their wisdom, okay, their wisdom, whatever wisdom that they might have. And that, that seems to be like one step. Like you could casually be around people who are non-Christian and hear their advice on stuff and think that might sound all right. But then the next one is a little more entrenched, okay? So notice here that it's to stand. Now you're, you find yourself more fixed in this place. And when it talks about the path, this is talking about the action. So if the first one is to walk in the council, that's a path of advice. The next one here is a way of action, okay? It says, or stand in the way of sinners, 
Okay, when we, we talk about way, the, the Bible often uses way as a, another way of describing a work. Okay, the works or the deeds, the deeds. So you think about uh, particular deeds here. It's talking about that, that, that the way of the sinner here is the actions. Don't, don't stand in with those who are doing what is evil. Okay, so then the next one, notice this, is to sit in the seat, okay, the, the seat of scoffers. What's different about this? Now we're talking about people with more entrenched, and the, the commentaries say this on this, that, that while um, the wicked and sinners may be more synonyms, when you talk about scoffers, you're talking about taking it to the next level. So you see, they see a progression taking place here, that when you sit in the seat of the scoffers, you're sitting in a seat that is surrounded by certain attitudes about God. Like the person who is wicked, they may not necessarily be scheming against God. Okay, they may just be like, I'm just doing my own thing. Okay, the effect of that is going to be similar because it's going to have the outworkings of evil. But somebody who's a scoffer has taken this to the very core of their attitudes. Okay, that there is no God is kind of a scoff, or um, it can be a scoff towards humanity. But whatever whatever is there, it's an entrenched attitude, and it's arrogant, and it's vocal, and it rejects wisdom and correction. And so... They're not only saying things like, hey, go this way, you'll find the most pleasure. They'll be saying things like, you don't need to listen to God. After all, what is he or how has he come through for you? So this, these are bad attitudes that are entrenched. And, and what the psalmist is saying here is don't get entrenched in that group, okay, to walk with them and hear their advice, to stand with them and do their deeds, to sit with them and adopt their attitudes. Don't do those things because if you do, it's going to be to your detriment. And so there's a note in all these that there's kind of this building parallel of progressive danger toward a permanence against God, walking, standing, and finally sitting in the company of those who are thinking, acting, and entrenched against God. Okay, so that's the righteous. It says don't do those things. This isn't to say, some have said you should never, you should never have any friends that are non-Christian. It's, it's not saying that. In fact, um, one of the Bible verses that's often used in 1 Corinthians that says you shouldn't have anything to do with certain kinds of people, but what it actually says there, if you remember, it's those who claim to be Christians and persist in their wickedness, not in with unbelievers, because Paul goes ahead and says there, because how could you do that? You'd have to leave the world, because there's always people around that are ungodly. So, you, there, there's a possibility to have a friendship of influence in those areas and not to receive influence. They shouldn't, I don't think they should be among our closest friends. I think our closest uh, companions and the people we trust in for advice ought to be people who are godly and have a way of talking with the Lord and knowing the Lord that others may not have. But what this is saying is don't adopt these particular attitudes. I think God wants us to be salt and light and for salt to have an impact, who's the writer back in the 70s or 80s that wrote the book, Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World? Anybody heard of that book before? And it's talking about, you know, we, we don't just sit huddled in our churches. We have to go out into the world and be salt and light among other people. That means building relationships and talking with them and communicating the gospel with them. That's a different thing than adopting a worldly outlook and a worldly view towards God. Okay, so 
He says, don't do those things. But then the next thing he says, instead of letting the world define our worldview, our outlook, how we think about God, how we think about the world, how we think about family, how we think about money, how we think about the goal of life, instead of letting the world define that for us, we need to go somewhere else. Look at where it says. It says in verse 2, now what we delight in, what the righteous delight in. What is it that the righteous delight in? According to verse 2. The law of the Lord. Okay. The law of the Lord. That's the delight. Delight here um, comes from the Hebrew word hepso. Okay. Hepso. It's spelled just like it sounds. H-E-P-S-O. That's the English transliteration. It would be spelled a little different in Hebrew. But the word means something like all that makes one happy. Okay. So in other words, like supreme or ultimate happiness comes from knowing God's will for us and knowing how to live, knowing what he's revealed of himself and what pleases him. Okay, that's the delight. So this describes the attitude of the righteous. The attitude of the righteous is that we ought to delight in the law of the Lord. Okay, that's really important, that we delight in the law of the Lord. Okay, notice um, that he goes on to say and meditates on it day and night. Anybody have anything besides meditate right there? That's in the next kind of stanza of verse verse 2. Delights in the law of the Lord and what's the verb there? If you what is it? Sorry, say it once again. Law. Yep. How about in place of meditate? Anybody have anything different besides meditate in your Bible? Okay. So meditate um, this word has kind of a vocal element to it. It's like ruminate, and it's it's almost like muttering. Okay, so I don't know if you've ever done this, but you ever read out loud, but not really loud enough where the words can become vocal to somebody else, but you're just kind of saying them. That's what it has in mind here. This isn't a weird kind of instruction that for you to be spiritual, you have to meditate that way. It's just describing what meditation normally looks like. It's a vocalization Reading silently is a fairly modern practice. Did you know that? Most people in the ancient world, then they read, they read out loud. And one of the reasons that was necessary is because in Greek, for sure, they didn't have spaces between their words in the days of the early writings of the New Testament. Did you know that? that all the words were crammed together, no punctuation. And so the way to get to all that is to read it out loud. Otherwise, it would be a nightmare to read silently and try to figure it out. So they read it out loud, and this is the kind of thing that is being talked about here is, is going over and over in your mind with something. So notice it goes from delight in the law of the Lord and meditating on the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. So we've gone for from delight, which is more of an attitude, isn't it? Like delight is something that happens on the inside of us, that we are happy when we hear the law of the Lord, Okay. Put it, let's just call this happy when we read our Bibles, okay? Let's call it that. We're happy about that. But then I would like you to notice that the meditate portion is not an attitude. What is it? It's an action, isn't it? So it can't just be this internal delight. It needs to be an action. We probably shouldn't say we love the Bible if we don't read it. We probably shouldn't say we delight in the Word of God if we don't ever crack it open. And so this is talking about not only that, like like reading would be 
a little bit below what the psalmist has in mind here. This is talking about somebody who goes over it and over it in their minds. And so if our Bible reading is one verse a day keeps the devil away, I think we need to up our game a little bit and, and meditate on it and read through it and ask, what is God saying here? Okay. And then what does is, what is day and night suggest? This is a, a figure of speech, isn't it? 24-7. Okay, now, don't get weird about this. Like, you can't be following this scripture to a T unless you have your Bible cracked open beside you at all times. It's not what this is saying. This is saying that our heart is geared towards hearing from God all the time, okay? That we delight in the law of the Lord. We meditate on it constantly, okay? We don't have to take this so literally that you got to do this every moment of every second of every day, but that this ought to be a major portion of how we think, is to meditate, continually carrying this out. Okay, so that tells us what the righteous delight in. We first heard what they don't do, and I'm including us in that, so what we don't do. And then what we delight in. And then the third thing in verse 3 here, it tells us what they are like or what we're like. Look at what it says in verse 3. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yield fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Now, remember, this is is poetry, and so we're drawing on an image of a tree planted by streams of water. And one thing that helps us understand the significance of this is to know that Israel, the land of Israel, was very arid, and for trees to grow is very difficult. And so... To have a tree planted by streams of water meant that it was by the life source so that it could remain through famine and difficulty. And so when it says in this first part, like a tree planted by streams of water, what we ought to get from that is that the tree is close to the source of its nourishment. Okay, So the person who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked and stand in the way of sinners and sit in the seat of scoffers, but delight in the law of the Lord, meditate on it day and night. Um, They are like a person, they're like a tree that is close to the life source. Do you see that? Okay, so this is really important that we understand in a changing world, which we have, constantly changing. The only thing that's constant is constant change, right? Except for God and his word. Um, We have something that we can be connected to in a place, in a time like that. Okay, so look, then it says that when the season, the right season comes, it yields fruit in its season. I don't know, my mind goes here to um, a story in the Gospels. Anybody remember the final week of Jesus? He, He goes to the temple, I think in Mark, it's so abbreviated. He goes in the temple and he looks around and then he leaves. The next day he comes back and he sees a fig tree doesn't bear fruit. It's not bearing fruit. It's in the right season for it, and so he curses the fig tree. And there's some imagery to that we don't have time to get into, but this is the kind of tree that yields fruit in its season, that when it's the right time, fruit grows. There's, there's, um, there's growth in the middle of a permanence, okay? And then I'd like you to notice the next part here. It says, whose leaf does not wither. Its leaf does not wither. Now, you're dealing with a more, um, I don't know if it's necessarily tropical climate, but at least subtropical climate there in Israel. And so 
to have trees that shed their leaves. I don't know if they, they have a lot of that, but this would suggest that it's not going to dry up because of the, the dryness above ground because it's got the source it needs below ground. So it endures through different seasons is the, the point that I think it's trying to make. And then blessed in all they do, whatever they do prospers, is talking about thriving and not just surviving. So these things are all true regardless of what's going on above the surface because there's nourishment below the surface where, where the strength comes from. Whatever's going on in terms of changing times, a storm may roll through, winds may blow, the tree can still hold on and be fruitful and be, be healthy despite that. Do you see the picture? I think the Lord wants us to have tonight is that regardless of the times changing, we can still stand firm in Him. Look at the contrast of the wicked. This will be much quicker and far less interesting. They always say that that evil is more interesting than good. I don't know that that's necessarily true because I don't think we've seen pure good the way that we would see it in God. There's pure beauty in that, but this isn't very interesting. What are what are the wicked like? Look at verse 4. It says there, the wicked, the Lord watches over, uh, sorry, I went to verse 6, didn't I? Not so the wicked, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. What is chaff? Anybody know? A casing on grain, okay? When you separate what's good from what is the throwaway. That sounds awfully harsh when we're talking about people here, but... This is what the Bible is describing them as chaff, is, is what's separated and what's thrown away. And there will be a day when he will separate the wheat from the chaff. What are they like? They're, life, they're like chaff, is what he says here in verse 4. And what um, will happen to them? They'll be thrown away. Okay? And then the next one in verse 5 is, uh, what are they excluded from? Just like you to notice here, uh, stand. Look at verse Look back with me to verse uh, 1 where it says the, that the righteous should not stand in the way of the sinner. But then you jump down here to verse 5 and you see the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Okay, you see the contrast? Okay, the wicked will not stand. We're not to stand in their way. They won't be allowed to stand in our way. Okay, see the connection there? This is a, a nice mirrored parallel. So they're excluded from the assembly of the righteous in the judgment. Okay, so God s- separates them. Part of what is going to take place in the judgment, I don't know if you've thought about this, but a lot of times when we think of judgment, we think of the scary prospect of God calling out all of our wrongs. And I think, I think that there are wrongs that will be called out in the judgment. But I think when it comes down to it, one of the other things that's going to happen, and this is... Um, this is shown to be true throughout the Old Testament, and the expectation is that the righteous will be vindicated, will be called righteous before him in the judgment. And so when the righteous are vindicated, the wicked cannot be a part of that, right? This is the separating of the sheep and the goats, and he'll say to those on his right hand, enter in, and to those on his left, depart from me. So they will not stand in the assembly of the righteous, and then the third thing here is shows what their destiny is. In verse 6, it shows um, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked 
leads to destruction. They go headlong into destruction. The thing that stands out to me in this passage is a sense of permanence through shifting season for those that are righteous. You can see it to even stand in the the end uh, is to, to be permanent because you've been connected to the Word of God and to God Himself. And both of these uh, change in permanence that God is with the righteous. So a tree in the Bible, um, the tree, that survives is a symbol, a symbol of stability. And with the arid climate, as we said, it was hard for trees to survive. And that's why the tree planted by the water is so important that it's found a place where it can be nourished at its roots and survive what happens on the surface. And this is a figure that we see again in other places in Scripture, Matthew chapter 13, verses 6 and 21. Jesus is telling the parable of the seeds, and he says, Some of them fell on rocky soil, and they grew up a little bit, but then they withered and they dried out. Why? Do you remember? He tells in verse 21 of Matthew 13. They, they, didn't, they fell on rocky soil, and their roots didn't go down and find nourishment. And so they grew up a certain way, and then the sun came out and scorched them, and they died. So do you see, when your roots don't go down, the external environment can dry you up and spit you out. I don't know if those metaphors, that's mixing metaphors, but you know what I mean. And then Colossians chapter 2, verse 7, encourages us to be rooted and built up in Him. And, and we're talking about God there, about Christ in particular there. Uh, but the whole point is that there's a rootedness to those who are in God, who are trusting His Word. And so if you take a tree, for example, we have this aspen that's growing in our yard. It's kind of a pretty tree. And the only reason I knew it was an aspen is because one day in the fall, it was really yellow and beautiful, almost like the color of a pear with the leaves, and I was like, that's a really pretty tree. I should look and see what that is, because I don't, I don't know what trees are. I'm not one of those people, but uh, so I looked it up, found out it's an aspen, and the really strange thing about it is, you know, that there it is growing, and it remains in place, um, and it's been there for since ever, ever since we've been in Alaska, and uh, when the wind blows, the branches move, and at certain times of year, um, the leaves fall. When, the, when winter comes, winter after winter, the appearances change because the leaves fall off and they expose these dark brown gnarled branches and um, something that looks like something out of a scary story. And then in the, the spring, we begin to see the buds uh, pop out and then the, the leaves pop out and it takes life again. And uh, the winter, through the winter, it makes it tough, and the wind makes it strong, and the years make it bigger. But every time it comes back, you know, every year it's it, there's new growth. You can't always see it, and it even looks at certain times like it's died. Janie's mom, when she first moved to, they moved to the Seattle area when they were, she was uh, first married Janie's dad. And uh, one day, Janie's dad got a call at work and said, uh, You're, you need, probably need to come home. Your wife is out in the yard crying. And so he, I don't know if he rushed home or he, somehow he found out that she was out there watering the trees because 
where she was, the trees had never shed their leaves before. And so she grew up, everything's green all year round. (laughs) And for the first time, she saw trees that shed their leaves in certain seasons, and she thought it had died. And there's a way that trees can look at certain parts of year that looks like it's died, but it hasn't died because its roots are still gaining nourishment from the ground. Do you understand what I mean by that? Yeah. Well, and thank God that we can be strong through the changing seasons. And even when it looks like that things are not going well, and this might be the thing that destroys us, if we're rooted in him, we can come back from that and we can be strong. In fact, I don't even know if we'd call it coming back. We just see it as part of the changing of seasons, change of seasons all around us. Solomon wrote about that in Ecclesiastes, that there's a time for every season under heaven. And the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses the word, there's two words for um, time in the in the Greek New Testament, one of them is chronos, and you get chronology from that, and it's like the sequence of events, the one after the other. And then there's kairos, and that, that term tends to mean more like a an appointed time or a particular season that comes, and, and not so much tied as much to um, chronological time as it is that this is a particular season. And so... When it talks about in Ecclesiastes, a time for this and a time for that, it's talking about a season and maybe even a pointed season. And if it happens in God's timing, there's a beauty to that. But yet God has put permanence in our heart. And uh, we can know that we can um, trust him and endure through that and be strong. So lots of things change around us, cultural moods as we talked about, attitudes about right and wrong shift. Um, sometimes they degrade, sometimes they revive. There's change in our um, our attitudes and change in us at times. But what can really make us stable in times like that? It's only, I think, through the Word of God and the character of God. So we need something that travels with us through these changing times, and I think the Word of God does that because one of the things that remains the same, we, we change, and Susanna said, I've changed. Of all the things in the world I see change, I, it's me that's changed. And we change. But I think there's, a, there's something that remains permanent in us, even as we go through those changing seasons. Remember the, the aspen tree that while um, the winds blew it, and you can look at it during different times of year, there's different amounts of leaves on it, the leaves change color, it still remains in the same place. You know what I mean by that? That it can move but it's still rooted in the same place. and It's still growing in the same direction. And I think if we're to think about what's permanent in us through the changing of times, I think we, we have to suggest that one of the things that needs to be permanent is our purpose and direction, that it's Godward. You know, that we might, um, we might grow in our knowledge of Christ and some of our convictions might change over time. Like there are some things that we thought were were really strong convictions early on that after having come to a place of maturity are not as, those aren't import, as important to us anymore, okay? But there are other things that we might not have seen that are that important. I wish I could give you an example of this, but we might not have thought were that important, but as time goes on, we see that that is more important, and we've grown in those ways. But all the while, we're growing towards God. So we're, there's a singleness of purpose and direction but there's also change that's happening in us, and there should be because we're being transformed into his likeness from glory to glory, the Bible says. So there ought to be some change 
even while in some sense we remain the same in our heart, our affections, our convictions, they're, they're same word in its direction towards God, but also they can be growing. You know, our love for God shouldn't change in the sense that we love God supremely, but I think if you're really in love with God, that love's going to grow, don't you? It's more of the same, okay? So I wish I could describe this a little bit better. But we know that God doesn't change. We know that morality doesn't change. I probably should say ethics there because there's a debate on whether morality is the mores of a culture, but ethics are the more enduring thing. Whatever you think of as the most universal thing, that's what we're talking about, okay? Cultural taboos, those change with time and culture. Like the sense of modesty that you find in Victorian England is different from the sense of modesty in the Pacific Islands, are you with me? Okay. It's different things. But there's still a sense of modesty that needs to go with that. And we need to understand that you can be moral in either one of those cultures. And it might look differently on the surface, but the principle is the same. Are you with me? Okay. So if you're not, ask me about it later. One of the things that changes with us is new growth and new fruit, uh, new knowledge, which... Uh, are an expansion of the same thing, okay? Our foundation, um, our building is built upon top of that foundation. The tree grows the fruit that's related to the tree that it's always been. If you have an apple tree, it's not growing oranges. The next day, it remains the same, but there's more fruit that's attached to it. And God's Word, so, so then it travels with us and it grows with us. And I labor this point, it's because I'm finding this more profound all the time. There are some things which um, hold fascination at each stage of life, and there are some things that we're not fascinated with anymore as we grow. Okay? Are you with me on that? So let me uh, give you some examples. Like one thing that remains a rich source of relationship nourishment is like your spouse. Your spouse and you, you ought to grow along with one another through those phases of life, and you strive for that. Or a lifelong friend, right? That ought to be something that you can enjoy over a period of years. There are some friends that I had in grade school that are they're not my friends anymore, okay? We've outgrown one another. We've grown in different directions, but there are some people that are lifelong friends. Um, an appreciation of God's world. How many have found that, that uh, you've come to a deeper appreciation of that? Like when you're a kid, you look at the mountains. I always did because I grew up in Kansas where there were no mountains. So we would go to Colorado and visit family and be like, oh, they're mountains. Those are so beautiful. Someday I want to live where there's mountains. It was just like an unexpressed wish, and God met me in it. Anyway, how beautiful are those? And then maybe some of the scenes of nature, and then you find out the more you know about those things, the more spectacular they are. Has anybody found that to be the case? Like, you know a little bit more about what goes behind all of that? Or a book that meets you all along the journey. But there are some things um, in for a season of life that you outgrow, and they're no longer important to you. When I was a kid, I liked to watch the Dukes of Hazard, and I don't know if anybody else watched the Dukes of Hazard or not, but... It was around 79 to 81, I think it was, when the Dukes of Hazard were out, and then they've shown reruns. And, and, and I didn't have to know anything about Dukes or Earls or Sheriffs or anything like that to enjoy the Dukes of Hazard. 
or that the way the title plays on words for danger. And I didn't have to know anything about General Lee either. I just knew that there were fun car chases and hilarious slapstick comedy and two pretty cool guys getting away with stuff, and they went into their car without opening the door. And I like that. That sums it up. I mean, that's the show right there. If you haven't seen it, spoiler alert, that's it. And there are two modern-day Robin Hoods, by the way. And uh, I didn't even have to. I I just liked Daisy back then because she was nice. I was too young to have any other thoughts about that. So, uh, But a few years back, um, I found that they were showing reruns of the Dukes of Hazard on country music television. CMT and some. I'm going to tune in because I want to get back a little bit of that childhood nostalgia and enjoy the Dukes of Hazard. And it wasn't the same. <laughs> Neither was Airwolf. But yeah. yeah, I found out that the plot was pretty corny. Um, the Duke, the Duke boys were still pretty cool. But the best part of the the show was the theme song. I thought. And I'm sure that they were probably canceled because of the rebel flag on top of their car. So you might not be able to find it anywhere anymore. But um, it wasn't really the show that kind of grows with you. It was the show that met me at a point in life when I didn't need anything sophisticated to keep my attention. Um, You know, that could have been done with short conversations and a lot of action, a little bit of Misfortune for Sheriff Coltrane and his deputy, Enos. Um, And so I think that that's probably an example of some of those things that they don't, they don't, they meet us at a particular point in life, but they don't carry with us. And um, I think the Bible's different. Joe was talking the other day, and I thought this was profound. He brought it up the other night when we were having dinner, and he said, I read this portion of um, the Chronicles of Narnia where Lucy comes upon Aslan and she said, and I know you probably were here for this, but she said, have you grown to Aslan? And she says, not me that's grown, but you've grown. And the interesting thing was that usually when we grow, the things we think are big get smaller. Anybody experience that? Like the big house you used to have and then you grew up and you think, it's not as big as I remember it. But what Aslan says to her is, it's not me that's grown, it's you that, that's grown. Your capacity for understanding me has grown. And I think the Bible is a book like that, that the more we grow, that our capacity for understanding it grows. It can meet us in the simple stories. And if we're in a place in our life where we're, we, we don't know a lot about the Bible, one of the things that we ought to do is, is we ought to just get ourselves familiar with it. And then once that happens, we've laid a foundation on which God can really do some big things in terms of growing our capacity to understand his word. And so that's where the Bible meets us. It's in our growing capacity to receive and understand it. It's simple enough to meet us in the beginning with stories, and it's profound enough to meet us in our adulthood and our maturity with sophisticated principles to live by. And it's not that it's a magic book of hidden truths. You know, there are some books out there, like especially in Eastern religions, mystic books, where things are said so vaguely that it's all based on reader response. How do you interpret this? And then you come to it, and you're really not reading anything out of that book. You're reading into it. 
Okay, the, the Delphic oracles were like this. You would ask a question of the oracle in Delphi, and it would give you some vague answer. And it was dependent on how you translated it, whether you were successful in your endeavor or not. And so a lot of that depended upon the hearer. I'm not suggesting that's in any way God's truth. I'm saying that that's one of the ways that fortune tellers and mystical religions capture people is they give these vague truths that are unencapsulated in time and history, and they just say, what do you get out of this? What do you, what do you see from it? And uh, in fact, we were, Jane and I, we're a little bit of fogies. We like to watch Jeopardy. And so we were watching Jeopardy the other day, and this was an old episode. And this guy on there said, they were, you know, Alec, Alex uh, does the interviews after the first commercial break, and different people talk about their lives. And this one guy said, he said, what do you do? You have kind of an interesting job. And he said, I used to be a telephone psychic. And so they asked him, well, what was that like? And he said, we just had to try to figure out stuff that would kind of catch people in. He exposed the whole industry by saying that our whole job was to say things vague enough that it could apply to almost anyone. Okay? And that's the mystical religions. The Bible says things specific, and we need to hear its voice. We need to glean out of it what God is trying to say to us. And it's a book that can grow with us, not because we're seeing our own reflection in it. By the way, if you ever hear of the Mirror Bible, don't buy it. This is that same philosophy trying to be um, used with the, with the Word of God. We don't read ourselves out of the Bible. We read God's Word, and it changes us. You understand what I mean? That we're not changing it. It changes us. And that's the, way, that's the way that it's supposed to be. So the Bible carries its own message with it, uh, with its facts and uh, the particulars it portrays. And to read them wrong is to miss the meaning. And some people take this that you can just read whatever you want out of it. It's an okay. But Jesus said in one place, you err. He said this to the religious, you err because you don't know the Bible or the power of God. And in another place, he says to Nicodemus, he tells him, you must be born of water and of the Spirit. And you remember what uh, Nicodemus said, he's getting it all wrong. And Jesus says, you're a teacher of the Old Testament and you don't know this? Like, you've interpreted this wrong. So we don't just get interpreted however we want. We need to understand what God's trying to say. And if we do, we will find in this book truths that will grow with us. Not only will they grow with us, they will grow us every step along the way. And so we want to be among those who are hearing from the Word of God and receiving it. And I think this is what we should expect with a book that grows with us, the Word of God. And so I, I, am, I was thinking of some examples of this, but let's skip on because we're running out of time here. Um, well, here's one example of this. Don't repay evil for evil. Okay? What does that mean? Two wrongs don't make a right. Good. That's well said. If you're on the playground, do you think that verse applies? Uh, my dad always told me. He was a really good Christian, but he told me if somebody punches you, punch them back. I don't think that's biblical, Dad. <laughs> that's not what our Sunday school teacher said. I think it applies to the playground. But don't you think it also applies to office politics when people are gossiping about you? I think it grows with us. You see the principle, although it's said in a very simple way, 
it grows with us. Whatever our circumstance in life is, it applies there. So it grows with us. It applies to the playground and to office politics. It meets us everywhere because the facts we can through the facts we can gain principles, and from principles we can gain an application. Let me mention these three things, and then we're, I'll wrap up with a couple comments here. Uh, when we read the Bible, we should ask three questions, I think. These are real basic, but I think they're important questions. First one, what does it say? What does it say? When we read this, what does the Bible say? Okay. What does the Bible, second, what does the Bible mean? What does it mean? Okay. That sounds like we're asking the same question again, but not exactly. Because when we read, uh, if someone slaps you on one side of the cheek, turn to him your other also, what does it mean is bigger than that? Because what it says is, literally, somebody slaps you, then turn this way. Okay? That applies to a very narrow set of circumstances, doesn't it? That specific thing. But what does it mean? Doesn't it mean the same as don't repay evil for evil? I think it does. So the principle is bigger than that. What does it mean is more than just about slapping and receiving slaps. It's bigger than that. Okay? And then the third question is, how do we apply it? Or what do we do about it? You can phrase that however you like. Um, and this is, okay, now that I've heard this, if somebody slaps you on one side of the face, turn to them the other also. The way I apply that is next time somebody says something terrible or mean, I'm not going to respond in kind. The next time uh, I get in an argument with somebody, maybe spouse, I'm not going to respond in the same way. The next time somebody cuts me off, I'm not going to respond in the typical way that some people respond. You, you see what I'm saying? The application is multitude. The principle is don't return evil from evil. The specifics are somebody slaps you on one side, don't, don't, uh, you should turn to them the other also. It's not trying to provoke them. It's saying don't repay evil for evil. And so we hear what it says. What does it say? What does it mean? How do we apply it? So when we understand there are principles within the Word of God that go beyond just a literal statement, then we can apply those in a broader context. And the Word of God grows with us. It's not just dealing with slaps and receiving. It's much bigger than that. All right, so if we're planted in the same Word, we can remain on the course that God has for us with purpose and direction, and we can grow into Christ. So how can we be grounded in a changing world like this? I think we need to be we need to be grounded to the Word of God. Like this whole um, slapping thing was, there's something very specific to that Roman context because then it goes on to say, if somebody asks you to go a mile with them, go with them two miles. So it's talking about exceeding uh, what somebody's asked of you and doing going even further. And there was a particular application with Roman soldiers that that applied to, but that's not an issue anymore. So times have changed, but there are other ways that that same principle can apply in our world, and we have to figure out what that is. That is one of the examples of how the Bible can grow with us. How can we be the kind of people who aren't dried out by the scorching sun and people who aren't blown over by a desert wind? You know, um, I, I heard a long time ago that they grew trees in a biodome, and they found out that when they got to a certain height, they would fall over and break off because in the biodome, they didn't have the wind to blow against them and cause resistance. 
And so with the resistance was a strengthening that takes place. And so there is wind in life. There's um, scorching sun at times. There's uh, severe weather. But if we're planted in the right place and we have the accompanying help of the Word of God to help give us permanence in this world, we can stand through all of that, whatever the seasons are. Amen? All right, any thoughts or questions? We've got two minutes. All right, stand with me if you would. Yeah, go ahead, Dax. You can't do that, right? Thanks. All right, stand with me if you would. Let's uh, thank the Lord for his word. Father, thank you for the word of God, and we thank you that you promised to those who love your word that you plant us by streams of water and that whatever the times are, whatever the changing seasons are, that we can be nourished and fruitful and not withered and endure through the changing of seasons. We pray that you help us to be just that because we're people of the word. Help us to love the word and study the word, to know it, to be able to ask those hard questions and be able to apply it in ways that are wise with the help of your spirit. We're not alone in this. Your spirit accompanies your word to help us to put it into practice. We pray for your help in that. In your name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.